one of the first things I tell individuals that I work with is get it wrong and keep getting it wrong because that's the only way you'll learn and actually begin to get this work. There's no right or wrong way. I don't want to talk binary. But the one thing is you have to move through the fear and really fear is the shame, right? So for many white passing folks, there's this shame around, you know, oh my gosh, I'm a racist. And it's not that you're racist. It's just you need to unlearn racist behaviors and biases. So it's really about navigating the shame that's associated with one's fear of being called out. Okay, you get called out. So do you go and hide or do you say, you know, you're right, friends. I've done something wrong and I'm going to do my best to keep getting it right. I'm looking for accountability. Thanks for keeping me accountable, right? Don't see being called out as an attack. See it as your opportunity to grow and to be held accountable because Brother Cornell West tells us that justice is love and action. And I can't say I love you if I don't hold you accountable. Now, I'm sure that's weird in the business world, but hey, if I can't hold you accountable, we aren't doing the work. It's really just moving with that innate fear and that innate shame Because once you can move with it, like, okay, I've made a mistake, make my apology, give gratitude for being held accountable, it gets better every time. And it's that same practice of just keep getting it wrong. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality, equity, diversity, and inclusion in workplaces and beyond. Before we start, we just wanted to take a minute to share that our thoughts are with everyone affected by the ongoing horrific events in relation to Ukraine and Russia. We're concerned for all damage to the life and well-being of all individuals and as equality practitioners we're particularly concerned for the rights of vulnerable groups and minorities and the increased risks facing those groups. For those individuals or organisations wanting to take action there are a number of excellent organisations out there in need of donations. Other actions that organisations can take include these. Take time out to check in with your colleagues at work and offer support. If you have an employee assistance programme, remind affected employees that this support is available and consider what additional support is being offered to support employees with managing their mental and emotional well-being. Consider designating a contact person in each of your country locations who employees can reach out to for assistance as needed. Ensure that affected employees have opportunities to take time off work and to manage their mental and emotional well-being at this time. For affected employees, consider offering opportunities to relocate if that's appropriate and offer to support with the financial cost of this if you can. Above all, make it a practice to check in with affected employees and make yourself available to help. Now, let's get started with today's episode. Regardless of where you live, if your values derive from your race, gender, class, sexual orientation, physical or mental ability, then you're privileged you receive better treatment or benefits derived from racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, or ableism. It took me a really long time to understand that ignoring or denying my privilege perpetuated other people's experiences of inequality. I would often rationalize that it was difficult enough for me to advance at work as a woman. How could I possibly take on all the other challenges individuals might face? These weren't my challenges after all. But then I realized I've often heard this argument from male leaders when they dismiss the need for another gender diversity initiative. 
They view the challenges that women face as women's issues without realizing that they're the people creating the problem in the first place. I've accepted inequality by simply turning a blind eye to it. For me, this is particularly ironic, given that I've spent years advocating for gender equality, only to realize early on that I was really the problem. Being unaware of people's experiences of inequality, like racism, ableism, homophobia, often inadvertently leads to behaviors that are racist, ableist, and homophobic. We're simply blind to inequality. Being able to learn about inequality without ever having to experience it is really the ultimate privilege. But just like inequality, when we deny our privilege, we're often blinded by it. Privilege makes it easy for us to deny other people's experiences of inequality. And it really keeps us from seeing the workplace in the way that other people see it. Denial is what keeps inequality alive in workplaces today. When leaders and employees see how that being a part of the dominant group gives them access to status, power and privilege, they'll also become aware of the very unique position that they're in to dismantle the very inequality they benefit from. We need to start seeing that workplaces don't work for everybody in the same way. But all of this really starts with taking time out to check your privilege. That is to become aware of the barriers that other people experience that you don't have to because your workplace devalues difference. In 2018, anti-racism guide and mental health activist Maisha T. Hill launched the Check Your Privilege movement on Instagram. This is a global movement that supports individuals on their journeys to becoming actively anti-racist. In just over three short years, this movement amassed 750,000 followers and became a sought-after hub for interracial activism during 2020's ongoing wave of civil unrest. In her upcoming book, Heal Your Way Forward, The Co-Conspirator's Guide to an Anti-Racist Future, Maisha shares her perspective and asks this critical question of anti-racism work. What do we want the world to look like in seven generations? On today's episode, Maisha will share with us how we can all take action to check our privilege and to tackle systemic racism and prejudice. My advocacy actually started in activism when my oldest son showed signs of autism. And I had to essentially teach myself how to advocate in the school system and be an activist for his rights. Also navigating the medical industrial complex, having to even fight for autism diagnosis. I noticed it when my son was two. I didn't get a diagnosis for him until he was eight. And that's just the amount of activism and advocacy that I had to do. And then from there, I became certified to help other families advocate for their children who need IEPs, children with autism or any other disability. From there, (laughs) I stayed in the mental health space as an activist with my own lived experience of anxiety and depression and being hospitalized. I've written about that in a book, which actually was my journal that I had in the mental health institution. And I formulated that into like a self-published book years ago. And then I noticed the impact that race had on the mental health of Black, Brown, and Indigenous, Southeast Asian, and Asian American Pacific Islander marginalized persons of color. It's a very long acronym, but I really believe in the power of identifying culture. And so I was involved in another project. I had a friend and we had a falling out And it really took me down a depressive cycle where I was literally questioning my mental health. It almost felt like a codependent and narcissist relationship where the questions that were asked and things that were gauged, and it was related to work, actually, 
just really had me going down a whole spiral. And so part of the process with this friend was to go into mediation to see what restoration looks like. This friend was a white woman. And what was interesting is as I was navigating this, I was talking to a lot of my friends of color and they were like, this is why we're not friends with white folks, specifically white women, because white women in professional settings, in personal settings, can't hold space for us. We're caretaking. We just need to throw them away. I was raised that there are no throwaway people. And so in my work, I said, huh, what could I do? How could I take this experience from pain to power? What can I do for the world, for humanity? And then I was on the internet and Check Your Privilege came up and I read it and I was like, this is a double entendre, right? Because I recognize that we all have varying levels of privilege. It's not just about race. And I said, you know, I'm going to start a thing. You know, that's how it starts for us creatives. I'm going to start a thing to help white folks work on their relationship with power, privilege, and racism so that they have that deeper understanding of how it impacts our mental health. And I worked with a great coach by the name of Valerie, who sat with me and wrote out my whole vision. And the vision was community events and online learning platform, the Co-Conspirators Lounge, and the anthology series where folks across racial difference would come together and write books about their experience of breaking up with the systems of oppression. I did that four years ago, and now here we are with <laughs> so much of that in like living history, right? So the birth of this was, was a painful relationship. And while people were telling me to throw white folks away, I knew that wasn't the answer because again, there are no throwaway people. We need each other, but it's learning how to use empathy and compassion and restorative relationship, right? To move the conversation forward. One of the greatest challenges we face in tackling inequality is getting comfortable with getting it wrong. You can tell everyone you want that Michelle King has given you permission to get it wrong. For me, the fear of saying or doing the wrong thing is really what prevents people from tackling inequality. When we're worried that we might get called out for being racist or sexist, it prevents us from really dealing with these issues and the beliefs that underpin them. And so these challenges perpetuate. And one of the key reasons for this is cancel culture. We all know of prominent public figures who've said something or done something, and it's resulted in backlash and calls to end the person's career, sponsorship, or media platform. But getting it wrong is how we learn how to get it right. Here, Maisha shares why it's so important to get it wrong and how we can support each other when we do. As you're describing my work, I think you're notating that it's always about throwing people away. And I give honor to the ancestor, Bell Hooks, who really kind of is that compass for me as I lead this work, where she says that, for me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? And so that's almost like a living breathwork of the work that I do at Check Your Privilege. And so when I think of the word privilege, I think of access, right? Like who has access? Maybe there's a privilege table and who has a seat at the table? And we are all across racial difference in collusion with these interlocking systems of domination, which are imperialist, capitalist, white supremacist, ableist patriarchy. And having that privilege within those interlocking systems is actually having access in layman's terms. And so when I think about privilege, I don't just think about race. I have to think of the intersection of gender. I have to think of the intersection of ability. I have to think of the intersection of class. 
I have to also think about militarism and what that looks like and from the lens of privilege, educational privilege. There's so many layers to it. And a dear friend of mine, Sylvia Duckwork, has a wheel of power and privilege, which beautifully lays out how I view privilege as a spectrum. And in the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and her work around intersectionality, it shows us that at any moments of our intersections, right, and the levels of access or privilege that we have is really what gives people positions of power in the world that we live in. And it's mostly power over a person or a place versus power with. One of the first things I tell individuals that I work with is get it wrong and keep getting it wrong because that's the only way you'll learn and actually begin to get this work. There's no right or wrong way. I don't want to talk binary. But the one thing is you have to move through the fear and really fear is the shame, right? So for many white passing folks, there's this shame around, you know, oh my gosh, I'm a racist. And it's not that you're racist. It's just, you need to unlearn racist behaviors and biases. So it's really about navigating the shame that's associated with one's fear of being called out. Okay. You get called out. So do you go and hide or do you say, you know, you're right, friends, I've done something wrong and I'm going to do my best to keep getting it right. I'm looking for accountability. Thanks for keeping me accountable, right? Don't see being called out as an attack. See it as your opportunity to grow and to be held accountable because Brother Cornell West tells us that justice is love in action. And I can't say I love you if I don't hold you accountable. Now, I'm sure that's weird in the business world, but hey, if I can't hold you accountable, we aren't doing the work. It's really just moving with that innate fear and that innate shame Because once you can move with it, like, okay, I've made a mistake, make my apology, give gratitude for being held accountable, it gets better every time. And it's that same practice of just keep getting it wrong. When I raise the topic of privilege and how it works in organisations during my corporate work, the discussion can get quite difficult. And that's understandable because none of us wants to think that we might be somehow complicit in anyone else's oppression or that our own achievements could be down to anything other than merit. But engaging with these tough questions is how we truly come to understand inequality. And for me, it starts with understanding that having privilege does not mean that you are a bad person or that you haven't worked hard for what you've achieved. But other people work hard as well. The difference is that not everyone starts from the same place and not everyone benefits from their efforts in the same way. As Michelle always says, success discriminates. Checking our privilege means understanding how workplaces may work for us in a way that they don't necessarily for others, and that that creates barriers to other people's advancement outside of their control. Privilege often presents as the absence of these barriers at work, rather than the existence of more obvious benefits. So I am white, I'm cisgender, I'm straight. This means that there are barriers that I don't face that some other people do. That doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't mean I've done anything wrong necessarily, but it does mean that I have privilege. The first step in telling someone to check their privilege is to check your privilege. Be mindful of how you want to engage in the conversation. I believe that mindfulness is essential in this practice. So let's say something's happening with some men in the workplace and they're not able to see how their biases are impacting the rest of the team or the women on the team. I think the first step is to have a practice of bias interrupters and say, you know, pull someone to the side, right? Because something that happens, I think, in corporate culture is as women, we use call outs as a protective mechanism. And if you really want to sit with someone and get to the heart of the matter, if you just call them out in defensiveness, you're going to get denial. 
But if you can take a moment and reflect on your own privilege, right? Because it's different when you're a white woman and want to address a white man than when you're a black woman and want to address a black man. And it's almost the practice that I have to do as a black woman is I have to check myself, check where I am, what's my temperature, and then pull the individual to the side, the head of the team, if it's a head of the team of men and say, hey, I'd like to share some thoughts with you. And I start with an I story. If you're in sales, you know that I story is how you gauge the conversation. And then you say, and I'm noticing in you that this is coming up and this is how it's impacting the team. Bring it into a one-on-one personal level first to engage and then take the conversation forward from there. I think what's happening with DEI and activism in the workplace and with the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey, the tension was call out, call out, call out, call out. And companies where we have to fix this, we have to do something, not understanding the historical systemic layers that got companies to where we are today. And so there's a personalization of a conversation that's not normalized in corporate culture because we're not taught to practice this, but it's really working with senior leaders of privilege to identify their biased blind spots on an individual and then collective level. In the DEI landscape, there are really so many different terms that people use to refer to different DEI topics. So if we think of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, quality, all of these terms mean slightly different things. We also have terms to describe people who take action when it comes to dismantling inequality, like ally, accomplice, advocate. And I think the challenge with debating some of the definitions behind this is we miss two important things. The first is we miss one of the universal truths that unite all of us, which is we all want to feel like we can be ourselves at work and be valued for that. And the second piece is we really miss the intent behind the words. So here I've asked Maisha to share what she means by the term co-conspirators and how every single one of us can be one. When I got into this work, I'm like, what's the word that I'm going to use for the community And I was just in the dictionary and I'm like, oh, co-conspirators, we're all like co-conspiring to take over the world and create something beautiful. And I had never heard of the word prior to four years ago. I never heard of the word, but it's something about it where we come together as individuals to create a collective of folks who really want to fight for systemic change in the world. And it actually starts with trusting BIPOC leaders to lead us in the work, because what happens sometimes is we need each other. But as people of color often get put on the back burner while our white counterparts lead. So in our community, we're called a community of co-conspirators. We talk about shared leadership, shared ownership. And what does it mean to really trust our leader? For me, I'm a Black woman, as she shares the vision of what the world could look like and how do we co-conspire to make it happen. And so in our community of co-conspirators, we do this by practicing nonviolent communication so that we can have hard conversations at work, monthly masterclasses to engage us as co-conspirators in what we can do for ourselves and the greater collective. And then really pushing education, advocacy, and action. I cannot harp on this ideology that we don't throw each other away. We need each other. And co-conspirators have the understanding that needing each other is not rooted in codependence, but it's interdependence. And so co-conspiratorship is essentially building interdependence in relations to one another across racial difference and centering voices of color and marginalized voices, LGBTQ+, to kind of guide and facilitate us in our journey ahead. I have a whole kind of framework that we've co-created as co-conspirators. It's really not being afraid to speak up because I think what happens in the workplace is that we see harm happening 
and no one wants to speak up. And a great example of what I consider harm is, let's say we're at a staff team meeting in a circle and everyone's contributing ideas and a person of color contributes an amazing idea and it gets put in the parking lot and the meeting is over. The idea is never attributed or talked about. And then the following week, the team comes in for another meeting and the male says that same idea and gets a standing ovation for an idea that was actually created by a person of color. And another colleague will sit there and know that the idea came from a person of color in the room and was not acknowledged and won't say anything. And so the idea here is that when you see harm, say something, but prior to saying something in the workplace, you need to go to your colleague and say, hey, I noticed that this happened in this meeting. How can I speak up for you? Are you willing to speak up? Really get curious about the person who was harmed's experience before speaking up. I see a lot of that in the workplace. I actually have that lived experience in the workplace of giving an idea or contributing to the team and being put in the parking lot. And then someone coming days or weeks later with the same idea and getting praise and others would experience the harm and not speak up. And that's a microaggression. It kind of damages the site because it's like, well, why am I here? And it doesn't create a culture of belonging. Finally, Maisha shares specific actions that leaders can take to be co-conspirators at work. I want to encourage leaders to really look at their individual journey and how they've been upholding systemic oppression within their personal life and within their role at work. Because I think what happens is a lot of leaders just want to move into action and a sense of urgency. And we all have heard that urgency is a tenet of white supremacy culture, right? So it first takes the leader to take some time to reflect on their journey personally and professionally, and then kind of start slowly gauging the conversation with their teams. A lot of leaders like to rush and have like one workshop and think it's done. And one of the things I'm often telling leaders is, no, this is actually like a six to 12 month journey just for the beginning. Like this is just scratching the surface. And so it's really being open and curious and learning and being willing to know that this is not something that can be fixed in one meeting. This is something that's going to be just like we tell co-conspirators who are not in leadership roles at work. It's an ongoing lifelong journey. Because the same way the systems are duplicated in the world, it's duplicated in the workplace. So I tell leaders, be curious about how you uphold bias, what microaggressions look like for you, what's your relationship to power dynamics, and then take that conversation into teams slowly first, not by just saying, we're having a workshop and everyone's going to learn not to be biased, right? But it's gauging the team's work. What are you doing outside of work to work on this? What have you seen happening at work? And then going into what we're going to bring in a team to kind of lead us and guide us through the process of dismantling systemic oppression in the workplace. Oftentimes what happens is corporations, you know, they work with their DEI lead and they have their ERG groups. And sometimes the ERG groups facilitate those types of training for their specific area. And I think what needs to happen in the transition should definitely be bringing in outside experts to come in and really help leadership teams really start to dismantle individual and work dynamics as well as the slow integration of the whole organization. Because if you're just working as an ERG group to hand out the information and the executives and the leadership teams aren't, what's the point of the process? Some of us are never going to know what it's like to be a racial ethnic minority woman or a person with a different physical or mental ability or a member of the LGBTQIA community. Men may never know what it's like to be the only woman on a leadership team but every single one of us can try. We can educate ourselves about the benefit that our privilege affords us, and in turn, some of the challenges that this creates for other people. 
And this is really the start. Checking our privilege is the beginning because once you check your privilege, you realize the unique position you're in to tackle the inequality you benefit from. And that's the second part to this. Spending privilege, as Brittany Packnett wrote in an article for The Cut, is probably one of the most important things that white people in particular can do. Spending your privilege means recognizing that inequality is everybody's problem to solve and starting to take action every day to dismantle some of the systems that you may inadvertently benefit from. Your fight is my fight. A quick one before we go. If you love our podcast and you like more, then please click subscribe now and leave a review. This support means such a lot. Thank you for tuning in to our episode today. If you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again, and I'll catch you all again next week.